0: Things like differential diagnosis, that's the, traditionally, the purview of the clinician because it's complicated and it's hard and there's lots of ways to screw it up. Good day
1: and welcome to another HIMSScast podcast. I'm Bill Sawicki, Managing Editor of Healthcare IT News, a Hymns Media publication. Today, our subject is what CIOs and other health IT leaders at healthcare provider organizations must consider as we move forward with artificial intelligence technology. My guest is a prominent figure in the field of health IT, Dr. Blackford Middleton. Blackford is an independent consultant currently working on AI issues at the University of Michigan Department of Learning Health Systems. Previously, Blackford served as Chief Medical Information Officer at Stanford Healthcare, CIO at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, Corporate Director of Clinical Informatics at Partners Healthcare System, Assistant Professor at Harvard Medical School, and Chairman of the Board at IMS. Welcome, Blackford. Thank you very much, Bill. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, let's dive right in. First, you say one of the biggest considerations we face with AI in healthcare is trust. How can executives at healthcare provider organizations convince clinicians and others to trust
0: an AI system they want to implement? Bill, it is such a great question. Thank you and thanks for having me on this, you know, great and an important timely topic. The issue of trust, I think, is becoming more and more important in how we think about AI in healthcare and how we ensure that these tools can be used appropriately, effectively, and and safely. And I I think of a few different things when I think about how to maintain trust and propagate trust. Uh, What I mean by that is, you know, how do we know for sure that the system actually does what it says to do or what it purports to do? And probably the best thing to do to look for uh, to ensure that kind of trustworthiness is, has the system been studied? and subjected to a careful evaluation? And has that been written up in a peer-reviewed uh, journal uh, as a validation study? So I, I would look to the literature first and foremost. Of course, there are many, many studies out there. Look for the good peer-reviewed journals. And on a kitchen, you'll see something in archive, you know, a preprint first. Just remember, that's not yet fully peer-reviewed. So, you know, take your time, let things evolved uh, as the evidence evolves. Secondly, I would try to find those AI systems which are transparent, that you can look at it, understand how it works. The designers, the implementers, the builders uh, will describe to you how it was created. And the key question here is, if it's created at the Brigham, will it work for me at Stanford or anywhere in between and vice versa? So I'd look for transparency in in how the algorithm describes or how the creators describe what the algorithm does. Uh, Third, I would look for, you know, whether or not there's a professional society involved, whether it be an IT organization like HIMSS or AMIA or a clinical professional society like the American College of Cardiology and and many, many others. That suggests that, you know, careful, uh, qualified folks are involved in, creating it or reviewing it or endorsing it in one capacity or form or another. Uh, So I would look for that kind of professional society association. Last, I would also look for the algorithm to be implemented in a way that provides feedback loops. When I'm sitting with a patient Friday afternoon, it's 4.15 and I'm eager to get home and the patient's eager to get home, you know, make sure that I can provide feedback to the developers, creators, implementers, the whole chain of folks involved in implementing this AI system in my clinic or my hospital or wherever. That kind of feedback, let's just learn at scale, sort of like a post-marketing surveillance of, of drugs used in practice. It allows us to learn at scale how this thing is performing and allows us to take the feedback from, from qualified users, of course, to fine tune it and make it better.
1: My second question What must vendors of AI systems for
0: healthcare do to foster trust? Yeah. This builds right on question number one, Bill. And you, you put these together so nicely. You know, really, the, the vendors, those who are selling this, are adding value to the world's biomedical knowledge, if you will, by making it implementable and usable and whatnot at the point of care. So in addition to the things we've already talked about, I think vendors have a responsibility for them to be as transparent as as possible. To, again, publish in collaboration with customers, perhaps even though collaborating with third-party independent types of folks. Um, And I'm struck by the Journal of Learning Health Systems approach to this. In fact, when you publish now an AI bit in the Journal of Learning Health Systems, there's an opportunity to actually post a, a version of the analytic, if you will, for everyone to look at, inspect, maybe even try on some test data. I think that's the way we, we need to be going. But in addition, vendors building complicated models, particularly now in the space of these large language models with hundreds of millions of parameters potentially in the model, it's really incumbent upon them to let us know what were the training data? Where did these large notes, these large language models come from? What were the training data? Again, if I traded on data from the Brigham, is that going to be similar to the, the experience or the data at the University of Iowa? So that's really important. Next big bucket for the vendors, I think, is to clearly you know, not only publicize their roadmap in a way that's, that's uh, possible commercially, but to describe in, in as much detail as possible their update cycle. When is this knowledge going to be updated? When might it decay, given a new practice-changing finding, as many of the knowledge-based vendors like to describe it? Uh, but make sure the end user knows that this, this update cycle is present and what to expect and, and when to look for uh, new updates, especially as they, as they come to pass. Lastly, though, for the vendors, I think part of the learning health system vision is that we are automatically monitoring and surveilling these systems as they're deployed in practice all the time, such that we can get this feedback, we can see how the users respond, we can see the impact of of updated knowledge artifacts or large language models or fine-tuning, what have you, and then... As I said earlier, you know, monitor in broad-based use what's happening. In some ways, I think this is you know like the MedWatch program the FDA has for drugs used in practice. Just if there's a medication adverse event, let somebody know. We don't do real well at, at that, but we, we we can do better. And perhaps the same kind of thing is called for for these AI systems that we have a a you know vigilance, if you will, as Peter Embry likes to call it, uh, operating all the time to monitor, survey, and and, and let us know if untoward uh, events happen using these systems, things like the hallucinations, things like frank error or other adverse events, or anything that really is untoward performance that needs to be documented, and uh, updates can then be made.
1: Now, you also say uh, it's extremely important to ensure all parties involved are comfortable with collaboration between man and machine for decision making how do you foster this kind of comfort
0: yeah bill this is this is new this is a green field certainly we've had ai in healthcare for many many years you know the first ekg i ever took for a patient you know had a machine the ekg 12 lead machine that would do an interpretation of of those that uh, the 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 trace, if you will, from the ECG. Similarly, we've had lots of other expert systems, AI systems, in place for a long time. The difference now is the scale and scope of the systems, which can actually help us, you know, support higher cognitive function. Things like differential diagnosis—that's the traditionally the purview of the clinician because it's complicated and it's hard, and there's lots of ways to screw it up. Uh, therapy planning, complicated uh, treatment planning, uh, things like that have typically been in the purview of the clinician, maybe aided by a, an expert system of some kind. But now we see these, these large AI systems actually working in, in potentially nearly autonomous modes. My belief is that we'll have in the healthcare delivery scenario, you know, many, many different AI systems operating concurrently. Marston Scott Loewish wrote a great paper in the New England Journal 1980. I encourage people to look it up. He described a cognitive funnel. The wide end of the funnel is where uncertainty is maximum. The narrow end of the funnel is where uncertainty is reduced to the minimum. And he suggests, in fact, humans, doctors, clinicians, the care teams probably better like the patient as well likely better operating at the wide end of the funnel. We handle uncertainty better than the machine, who, if encountering an error, may simply shut down or abort or, you know, make an error in its recommendations or or intervention. The narrow end of the funnel is where the computer actually excels in computation, in large models, big systems, what have you. But in fact, we'll have many such systems working throughout the cognitive funnel In collaboration with the clinician, I think the clinician will need to know how to turn towards those expert systems designed for the wide end of the funnel to help us find the way. As Julia Adler-Milstein described in JAMA recently, wayfinding may be simply setting the right direction. What kind of disease is this? What's the next best test to do? Whereas at the narrow end of the funnel, that's really where where we might want precision medicine type of inferences to occur based on this patient's genome, you know, what are the most likely things to consider and worry about over the course of a lifetime? I think the first thing is make sure we know all the systems that are operating in this cognitive funnel. Make sure that we're training folks appropriately with in-service training and refreshing training so that, you know, I'm up to date on that. How do I use this AI system? Just like I'd be up to date, on how to use a a new drug or even an old drug for a new purpose, perhaps. Um, The third thing I'd mention is make sure we understand the purpose, the intended purpose for each of these AI systems, and that they more or less stay in their swim lane. That is, you know, a a differential diagnostic system might be doing one set of things around creating a differential, but a drug-drug interaction checking system will be doing something almost completely independent. So making sure we understand the the, the the purpose, the purported use of these different AI systems and that they don't interact or conflict with one another. And then lastly, as as we used to say at Partners Healthcare, now Master General Brigham, always provide that help at the elbow. Sidney uh, Spur used to say, you know, when we install a new system or a new feature or a new function, make sure there's help at the elbow on the wards, in the clinic, in the hospital, so that, you know, a, an ED user has someone to go to and ask for help.
1: Okay. Um, now, you have some opinions on patient-facing AI tools. Uh, please talk a bit about these kinds of tools and what provider organization health IT leaders
0: should really know about that. Yeah, this is a, a fascinating space for several reasons, Bill. On the one hand, you know the patient-facing AI tools may actually, I think at least historically, have been developing faster than the clinician-facing tools. Aside from the examples I've mentioned already, you know the the, the patient-facing tools are unfettered in some ways by regulatory constraints; uh, don't have the same kind of you know qualifications and, and hurdles perhaps to overcome. But now there are just hundreds if not thousands of tools which can help you with weight loss, with mood management, depression, uh, with exercise and steps. Of course, some of the newer ones are actually offering, if you will, sort of cognitive behavioral therapy or other kinds of interventions in an autonomous way, and that's extraordinarily exciting because we know there's an access problem. We know there's not enough clinicians. We know there's a shortage of primary care and nursing. So the more we can activate the patient with these kinds of tools, I, I think the better uh, because an activated patient is an engaged patient. And I I think we'll have generally better outcomes, but very interesting work going on now. What does the CIO need to know? I think the CIO, sh- I think the CIO should uh, have a committee, perhaps an AI tools committee, which says, you know, which are those we would actually endorse for our patients and have them on a list and stand behind it, do the evaluation, do enough work to say, you know, these are actually doing what they say they do. They're updated and maintained appropriately. They're evidence-based and credible. And we we think if your uh, patients wish to use them uh, in your clinic, in the hospital, that that would be a okay. So one more question for you, Blackford.
1: Um, from your expert perspective, what do the next five years look like with AI in healthcare? What must
0: CIOs and other leaders brace for? Yeah. You know, number one, when I when I think of this question, Bill, number one is, is you know, withstand the huddy. <laughs> number one is to be a critical thinker, appraise the evidence uh, as the CIO, as the CMIO or CMO or CNO but appraise the evidence critically to say, you know, these tools are evolving, are the claims valid and substantiated or carefully documented and peer-reviewed and the like, all the things we've talked about already. But then, secondarily, I would be sure to have some expertise in-house. You know, at a, in a complicated, big IT shop, there's all kinds of folks with all kinds of expertise. But, you know, this particular expertise around AI is new and different. So we need to be sure that folks in an IT organization have that kind of expertise or the team has access to it. Uh, I mentioned already the idea of an AI committee. Certainly, many folks will create knowledge management committees to keep up to date the software in in their environments, you know, with the latest and greatest. uh, The same committee or perhaps a quality improvement committee might take on this responsibility of, you know, here are the one, two, three best apps we recommend for, you know, assisting in your weight management or weight loss journey. You know, that kind of uh, anointing, if you will, after careful review, I think will help our patients all know which I can look at and have some trust in uh, because partners said it's okay or Vanderbilt or Stanford or whomever. Um, and I don't have to make these evaluations myself as an you know, less informed end user. So I think these committees uh, are important, but I think also the CIO has the responsibility of making sure these AI systems play nice. They have to play nice in the environment. You have to be sure that they have access to the relevant data for use, not for training, but for use in practice. In other words, can I feed them the relevant data from the patient chart, from the PHR, EHR, or FinTech, uh, patient billing, what have you Make sure that the data the AI system needs uh, to infer for a patient or population is readily available and in the right form and format, et cetera. But most importantly, perhaps, Bill, I'd say, make sure that the insights, uh, the, the insights generated by this AI system are delivered to the end user in the clinical workflow in a way that is actionable. This is, you know, and these are old saws now for clinical decision support. Uh, Jerry Osheroff's Five Rights kind of ideas. But we need to make sure that insights are returned to the clinician in his or her workflow. Same will apply to the patient when I'm ready to receive it as a patient. How do I wish to receive it? When's the best way to do that, et cetera. Uh, But to do do both of those things in a way that makes them actionable uh, for the clinician especially, don't make me jump through more hoops to copy data from point A to point B. For example, you know, make this, make this, these data or make the intervention actionable at, at the point of care in whichever system I'm in. I'm in.
1: Fantastic. Uh, <laughs> and that is today's cast. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Blackford Middleton. Thank you, Blackford. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you. And to all listeners, stay tuned. Another Cast will be coming soon.